0: Listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the Church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit UnitarianSA.org.au. Good morning, everyone. I'll start with some notices. The most important one today is the wine auction after the service. So, on the table next door, you'll find some wine bottles. Now, the history of those is that they were donated for the very successful Catherine Helen Spence donation. We had a few left over. So, it's a silent auction. You go and write down your name and the amount you want to bid. And at a certain time, uh, about 10 or 15 minutes after the service ends, we will call the auction closed and the highest bid, the last bid at that stage, wins. The idea is that your bid must be higher than the previous one already on the page. But hopefully you've done that sort of thing before. And some of you may even be fortunate enough to bid for your, your own wine that you donated for the oration. Good luck you'll get a bargain. Uh, Now, uh, Bush Care at Shady Grove this Wednesday, 9 until 1. The service next week is even more worthwhile than usual, being an interfaith service, and we have three guests to help us from three different faiths. So please come along and support that. For those elected to the Committee of Management, Sunday the 10th of December, to put in the diary, 9am, on the 10th of December... Our young people, we think, will be running the service and will put on a lunch afterwards. We don't know how this is going to happen yet, but it will. It will. I'm sure it will. I have faith. There's an event on 25th of November, so that is next Saturday, called Cultured, 11 to 4 at Four Oaks Farm, Little Hampton. Some... Emails, I think, or the newsletter has written, the notice has already mentioned this, but it's sort of a family event in support of refugees, and there's also a book and plant sale at St Ignatius Hall, again for the benefit of Circle of Friends who help refugees. That's next Saturday, 2 until 6pm at St Ignatius Church Hall. Mary has slightly changed office hours, but uh, really just phone in advance if you need to speak to Mary, I think that's probably the easiest thing. And Aaron has a notice. Oh, that's right. I have to give you my topics for the next two months. <laughs> I'll think of that during the music interludes. Very good. Well, as you know, everyone is welcome here, no matter what your background, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, whatever. And uh, it's great that we've been here in South Australia since 1854, meeting on the traditional lands of the Kaurna people, or in the case of Shady Grove, the Perrimank people. And, uh, you know, if you want to, you can make a donation on the way out, either by tap and pay or cash. And so, as is our custom, we light a candle on this chalice, not just a flame in a candle. For thousands of years, human beings have struggled to understand something which is more than just us, more than the flesh and bones, more than the world we see. Some human spirit, perhaps something divine which can be represented by flame or light. Mary is going to read a story for us. If
1: you can see the screen from where you are, you don't have to come up front, because the pictures are going to be on the screen, and I think I'll just use this microphone if you don't mind. The story is called Eyes That Speak to the Stars by Joanna Ho and illustrated by Dung Ho. The other day, when Baba picked me up from school, I didn't run in for a hug like I usually do. I stared at my toes where it was safe. What's wrong, Baba asked. And all my hurt tumbled out. Kurt drew a picture of our friends, I said. He pointed to a person with eyes like two lines stretched across his face and told me, that one is you. But it didn't look like me at all. When we got home, Baba stood me in front of a mirror and said, your eyes rise to the skies and speak to the stars. The comets and constellations show you their secrets, and your eyes can foresee the future just like mine. Baba's eyes that rise to the skies and speak to the stars are filled with all the surprises he can't wait to give me throughout the day. When he lifts me above his head and cries, Ready for a takeoff! before running through the house like we're headed towards the heavens. His eyes shine like runway lights and tell me, lift your arms, my son, you're going to soar above the clouds. Baba always looks up, and his eyes are like just like a A Agong's eyes that rise to the skies and speak to the stars gaze into the distance, like they're looking at the world through lenses of time. The voices of our ancestors whisper in his ear, speaking in lilting languages of rice paddies, climbing mountains like Mazu's miracles, showing mercy from on high and mango milk from night markets lit with bulbs of light. Gong has an answer for every question I ask on our early morning walks. But when I hug him goodnight, he cups my face in his hands, and looks at me like I am the only answer that matters. Egong holds out the wisdom of generations, and his eyes are just like Didi's. Didi's eyes that rise to the skies and speak to the stars are just like mine. When Didi's eyelids finally flutter open, I orbit his crib making funny faces and singing silly songs until his laugh grows so big it spreads up his cheeks and makes his eyes squeeze shut again. He looks at me like I'm the world, but he is the sun, filling my days with light. My eyes gaze into space and glimpse trails of light, inviting me into impossibilities. The comets and constellations show me their secrets because I am the emperor of my own destiny. I read a brighter future in the stars and will fight to make it a reality. My eyes that rise to the skies and speak to the stars are visionary. They are Baba and Egong and Didi, and they are me, and they are powerful.
0: Thanks, Mary. Sunday Club time, so young people may wish to go out with David and others. They have a service to prepare and now i believe that sheets have been handed out for a hymn we haven't sung before but it's very beautiful and fortunately there are some very good singers among us who can probably lead us through it robin will play through once and uh, then we'll have a go at it thank you come to that traditional part of our service where we share joys and concerns. And I think I'll we'll just express a simple concern for those of our congregation who are having health problems at the moment, some with COVID, some getting over falls, uh, it's always a concern, but they have a lot of love around them to help them get better. Who would uh, like to come forward? Yes, for Commissioner Stevens' son. And indeed I could extend that to all who have been touched by death and uh, injury on the roads. Perhaps I would just light one final candle for those concerns and joys which are in our hearts, but we're not sharing just at the moment. Let's just take a moment quietly to contemplate what we've heard. In the world around us, there are always challenges to bear, whether they be health, the loss of loved ones, or the playing out of the grasping for power that we see around the world. But there is also much in which we can rejoice, love stories, stories of connection between each other sometimes in the most unlikely circumstances. And we are thankful for that. Now we have a reading. Uh, Jane, would you like to come forward and read for us? Thank you.
2: Formal academic philosophy glorifies the intellect and thus makes research into what are, after all, incidentals if we consider philosophy as the supreme means of investigating the problems of life and the universe. The Kabbalah makes the primary claim that the intellect contains within itself a principle of self-contradiction and that therefore it is an unreliable instrument to use in the great quest for truth. Numerous academic philosophers have likewise arrived at a similar conclusion, and some of the greater of these have despaired of ever devising a suitable method of transcending this limitation and became sceptics. Others, seeing simply the solution, have seized upon intuition, or, to be more accurate, the intellectual concept of intuition leaving us, however, with no methods of checking and verifying that intuition, which, in consequence, is so liable to degenerate into mere guesswork, coloured by personal inclination and abetted by gross wish phantasm. That's Israel Regardi from A Garden of Pomegranates, scrying on the tree of life.
0: So that might all make a bit more sense after I've offered some words of reflection today. (laughs) So I want to share some thoughts today about the Kabbalah. And really the starting question is whether you want to be free of the worries, toils and snares of this world. Do you want to be closer to the divine or if putting it that way produces an uncomfortable reaction let me put it in a more humanistic way can you imagine can you imagine a shining light of loving kindness within you that you can bring to your life and those around you through self development greater consciousness and simply being the best person you can be Given that you're here today, I'm hoping that you answered yes to at least one of those questions. So I'm going to explain briefly one of the many paths in the spiritual history of humanity which has provided answers to people in ancient and modern times, the Kabbalah. The name is derived from the Hebrew verb for reception, meaning that it is a received wisdom, and has some claims to ancient connection with God. It means being open to the wisdom and love which all of us can attain, though not without work. It means having open hearts and open minds. I realise that for most of you the topic of the Kabbalah would be unfamiliar. There is quite a history to it which I think can be divided into three parts. It evolved out of a long history of Jewish mysticism, then there was a Christian adaptation of Jewish Kabbalah during the Renaissance period, and that in the 19th and 20th centuries evolved into a Western esoteric system of self-development. A naming convention has been developed to refer to the original Kabbalah, the traditional Jewish search for God beyond the literal scripture is often spelt with the K, the Renaissance Christian take on it, often spelt with a C, and the more recent Western esoteric variation with a Q. With or without double B, with or without double L, and with or without H on the end. This is what happens when no one is in charge. Now, in all of these approaches, when one delves into the detail, there's a vast structure of intricate calculations and metaphors. Fundamentally, however, it refers to a person preparing themselves, consciously receiving something of that spirit of wisdom and love, something ineffable, which is open to all of us. Beyond what can be comprehended by study of the material world, My friend Aristotle would not be impressed. Like a number of religious innovations, many claim an ancient heritage to their version of the Kabbalah. Some will say it goes back to the rabbinical Judaism of pre-Christian times, although with the greatest respect I think it more accurate to acknowledge that there was always a metaphysical aspect to Judaism, favoured more by some than others. And out of many centuries of mystical commentary, what became known as Kabbalah really came into its own in medieval times. I shall explain. It is widely accepted that much of the Jewish Bible, which is something like but not exactly the same as the Christian Old Testament, was written over a period of hundreds of years in the centuries before the Common Era. As the centuries passed... Many devout scholars offered interpretations of the Holy Scriptures. This is inevitable in every text-based religion, since it is beyond the grasp of human minds to cover all eventualities, especially in books which seek to set out the rules for living, the purpose of life, and the way to spiritual growth. So in time, some of the Jewish scholars developed a multi-layered system of interpretation with a neat acronym. The acronym was PARADES, This Hebrew word for a walled garden is related to the Greek paradisos, from which we get paradise in English. Anyway, this word paradis became an acronym for peshat, remez, drush, and sod, four different ways of reading a biblical text. Best to take an example. If the scripture said, the man flew with his wings to heaven, the first level of interpretation is literal. The man grew wings, he flew. The second level of interpretation relies on allusions, perhaps comparison with poetry or descriptions found elsewhere in scripture. So, for example, if there are other descriptions of angels flying to heaven, then the description of the man with wings could be interpreted that he was or became an angel. Another form of allusion that might be drawn is by means of comparing the numerical value of the letters in the text where there is the same numerical value of other relevant words. This practice of studying Jewish scripture was known as gematria. It works like this. Each of the 22 Hebrew letters has a number ascribed to it, therefore each word or phrase or name could be given a number. The scholar would explore other relevant words, names and phrases until hitting upon an example with the same numerical value. Based on the premise that scripture was perfect and that such instances would not merely be a coincidence, the scholar would then contemplate how the one phrase could be connected to the other of the same numerical value. And the cynic might might think, well, if you look for words that much, you're going to find one. (laughs) You're going to find something. But I think the value of the exercise is at least partly in the way that one gets a delightful aha moment when things fall into place. If you do crossword puzzles or Wordle, you might have some idea of what I mean. For example, if you take the numerical value of the Hebrew word for father and add it to the numerical value of the Hebrew word for mother, you get the numerical value of the Hebrew word for child. Spooky. (laughs) But, of course, there are much more profound connections that people have made. The third level of exposition relies on teachings about the text. So just as there are thousands of learned sayings in the Islamic world known as the Hadith, there are the Midrashim in the Jewish context, which are the sayings and teachings about elements of scripture. In this example, there may be teaching about a person becoming so good that they are able to elevate themselves to be more acceptable to God. So the story of the man with wings could therefore be interpreted to mean the person has followed the law, behaved ethically, and therefore become closer to God. The fourth level refers to a secret meaning of the text, something that is not obvious, something people wouldn't even be expected to know. So in this example, it could be that the description of a man with wings flying to heaven is entirely an allegory about the soul's union with the divine, something that occurs entirely on a metaphysical level, which is getting a long way away from he grew wings, he flew. Lullaby by Friedrich Burgmüller. So a landmark in this line of mystical thinking was the Sefer Yetzirah by a rabbi about 1900 years ago, perhaps early in the second century of the Common Era. Essentially, it was an account of creation, but it drew heavily on language and the significance of the Hebrew alphabet and numbers. In this line of thinking, as with practitioners of magic, in ancient and medieval times, names were extremely important, whether in the ancient Jewish context or the shadowy side of supposedly Christian Western Europe in medieval and Renaissance times. A magician who could correctly name a demon or angelic spirit supposedly allowed the magician to command them. Anyway, the Sefer Yetzirah could be seen as drawn from Greek or Gnostic philosophy in the sense that creation emanated in a series of steps from the unknowable at the beginning of time. Not necessarily inconsistent with the biblical count of creation, but certainly a distinctive elaboration upon it. And many of the rabbis of this period undoubtedly studied Greek philosophy. They developed a system of understanding the universe with four levels. You can see they've had a bit of help from the Greek philosophers. The four levels being the world of pure ideas, where an idea is archetypal. Then there is also the level upon which that idea takes a specific form, and then there is the idea of a particular object, and then there's the object itself. So to take the example of a chair, in the archetypal realm of Atziluth, there is a concept of a supported flat surface upon which objects can be placed. In the creative world of Briah. This concept is developed as the coherent idea of a chair without yet conceiving the particular form of a chair. Thirdly, in the formative world of Yatsira, one may find the idea of a particular chair which is to be made, the thought conceived by the table maker. And then finally, in the world we see around us, manifested at the level of Asiya, there is a chair. Those of you who are students of platonic philosophy won't have too much trouble with this. So Sefer Yetzirah is translated as the Book of Formation. It describes the creation of the material world as something like a waterfall, as emanations devolve from the Creator and flow through a series of vessels. This mystical work became one of the foundational texts for Kabbalah, which developed the concept of the vessels and the journey from top to bottom, and from bottom to top again. So if we jump forward about a thousand years from the Sefer Yetzirah, we find the publication of the Zohar, the Book of Radiance. At that time, Jewish culture flourished in Spain under Muslim rule, We're talking about the 1200s. In fact, Jews, Muslims and Christians lived peacefully together, the period before the Reconquista, the reconquest of Spain by Roman Catholic armies, which ultimately led to the brutal expulsion of Muslims and Jews at the end of the 1400s. The Zohar is an extremely extensive and complex patchwork of different themes and topics. On a surface level, it describes the journey of a rabbi through the hills of Galilee, discovering the deeper meaning of Jewish scripture. And in essence, it explored the world of divine ideas. The Zohar featured ten stages of clearly identifying a name or quality of God in each stage. One could call them manifestations of God in creation. One could call them names of God. Kabbalists imagined these ten stages as spheres, known as sephirot in Hebrew, with 22 pathways between and above them, and the 22 connecting lines correlate to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. One of the lovely images in the Zohar is the clothing of the spirit. It says the body is a veil over the spirit. Next I turn to the teaching of Isaac Luria, a rabbi living in the 1500s. He elaborated upon the conceptions of creation of the universe. He imagined the Godhead contracted to allow space for the other levels of creation to emanate and exist this contraction in Hebrew known as tzimtzum. Creation was initially a series of ten vessels, and when the light of the ultimate divine spilled through into the universe, it was too much for the vessels, and they shattered. The light became embodied in coarser material, the symbolism flowing right through to humanity, the soul clothed in human body. This meant that the task for spiritual humanity is to repair the world, not just from our own pollution and exploitation, but because it is an inherently fractured place. The Hebrew expression for this is tikkun olam, repair of the world or healing of the world. And the Kabbalist would say this is the task we are engaged upon. Study, meditation and service to others are always the ways to make progress. So jumping forward to the 21st century, There are many Jews who would say such thinking is heretical. Many would simply ignore it and follow more conventional tenets of orthodox or reformed Judaism. Within the various branches of Judaism, however, there are those who still adopt and use some or all of these ideas. But now I go back a few centuries, maybe about 500 years. A number of events coincided in northern Italy in the late 1400s. It became home to many of the Jews who fled Spain whether or not they had apparently converted to Christianity as a matter of self-preservation. At the same time, there were Turkish conquests of southeastern Europe, which brought not only refugees, but also some old Greek copies of scriptures and philosophical books. There was also the advent of the printing press in the 1400s. Books of religion and philosophy became popular with Renaissance Italians of the upper classes. One movement of thought which emerged from these cross-currents was a Christian adaptation of Kabbalah. It must be said that some of this was straight-out cultural misappropriation. For example, the highest levels of the ten sefirot, which are drawn conventionally in a triangle, were said to be the trinity of the Roman Catholic Church. Not exactly what the Jewish author of the Zohar had in mind. Even today, although the notions of Kabbalah in Western Europe have significantly evolved, There are still Jewish people who consider it to be cultural misappropriation, and I do respect that point of view. On the other hand, most of the world's religions, as I see it, are adaptations of earlier efforts to explain the world in spiritual terms. Some ideas in Jewish scripture drew on the Babylonians, some drew on Greek philosophy... The emerging Christian church obviously drew on Jewish experience. Islam drew on some ideas and practices of the Jewish and Christian religions. And so it goes on. The 19th century Kabbalists of... I'm spilling it with a Q now. Um, the 19th century Kabbalists of Western Europe drew on a background of hermetic mysticism and focused on the pathway to the divine. Here we are in the kingdom of the material, striving for the divine. So the notion is liberation from the material world. Based on metaphor developed in the 1600s, the ten sephirot were given the setting of a tree of life. Freemasons and Rosicrucians also drew on this mythology. And in this line of thinking, all manner of correspondences were brought into the mix, from astrology, from the tarot cards, the Hindu chakra system, and from biblical metaphors. So, in the example I have on the screen, ideas have been brought in from the tarot, from the various astrological qualities, the elements of earth, air, water, and fire. It becomes a network of correspondences. The qualities attributed to the ten Sephirot continue to be worthy of contemplation. And I'll just give the English translations. Starting from the base, which is from where we can ascend, that is called in English the kingdom, not the kingdom of which Yeshua spoke. This is the kingdom of the material world, ruled by powers which seek to consume and dominate. Then we have the foundation, then victory, splendor, beauty, mercy, strength, And I pause there to say that in this understanding of spiritual development, it is equally important to grasp the lessons of mercy and also of strength, so that one has both forgiveness and tolerance, but also, on the other hand, self assertion for justice and truth. And then the higher three sephirot, the triangle at the top, representing wisdom, understanding, and finally the crown. But in fact, there is more beyond that, but it is acknowledged to be divinity which passes all understanding. Perhaps physicists could relate to this in terms of dark matter, something in the universe which, at present, is beyond complete comprehension. As the 20th century developed, qualities of divinity in the 10 Sephirot were also given new meanings as we understood the psychological development of the self. So that, again, in this tree of life, in this path of progress, one can map it out as a development on the material physical plane of our physical bodies, the emotional, the mental and ultimately the more spiritual aspect of our nature. So today has just been an intellectual excursion, and the question is who is willing to embark on an experiential journey of study, meditation and service, following whichever tradition. As Rabindranath Tagore said, you can't cross the sea merely by standing and staring at the water." And to finish on a more poetic, humanistic note, can we imagine a shining light of human kindness within us? And if so, let us share it with the world every day of our lives. I hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa